Welcome to the Men at Work podcast, episode number 15. I'm your host, Travis Streb. Today we've got Kate Braid on the show. Kate and I go back a long way. I met her um, when I was about five years old when she was renovating uh, the basement in my parents' home. She is an absolute pioneer when it comes to women working in the trades. She spent uh, well over a decade working usually as the only woman in an all-male construction crew, uh, building everything from basement renovations right up to bridges. During uh, her time, Kate's got so many interesting stories about the world of men at work and women in the world of men at work. Uh, She had so many deep insights Uh, that she ended up becoming a poet and writing poetry about the topic of men's culture in construction, about her own experiences. She's just got a rich uh, array of stories to share. We talked about a lot of stuff. Her stories are amazing. We talked about the culture of men, how men are socialized in a linear way, what it means to be a woman in trades, and sadly how almost nothing has changed since she was working there in the 1970s. And we even dig into the Me Too movement. So it's a real treat to have Kate on the show. Like I said, we go back a long way. Let's jump into episode number 15. You had this this history of going from being a, um, a young woman or a young girl wanting to be a homemaker in Ontario to um, ending up working as a carpenter uh, on, the, on the West Coast. Mm. So how did, that, how did that all come to be? Um, well, actually, I, didn't, I never wanted to be a homemaker. Um, I was pretty clear on that. I was the eldest of six, um, and so I'd had it with babies. My youngest brother and sister, were, I was 11 and 13, so my mom had a lot of kids. Dealing with my dad was a big issue, so so I was very clear I didn't want kids. But in those days, so this was the 60s, um, a girl had three choices. If you weren't going to get married and have kids, which is what the assumption was every girl would want, uh, you could be a nurse, a secretary, or a teacher. And the big deal was you could also in those days become, the latest thing was a stewardess. If you were lucky. If you were lucky and you had to be a registered nurse and single. If you married, you were out. It was crazy. I mean, at the time, though, we thought that was liberation. Is is this for real? Yes. It was actually a rule? You had to be single if you were going to be a stewardess? That's what I was told. Yep. Wow. Well, you had to be cute. I mean, there were looks thing. Everyone knew you were judged on your looks. I mean, the good news is we have come a certain distance. Yes. <laughs> so of those choices, I, I knew I couldn't stand throw up. So I knew I couldn't be a nurse. So I sort of did all the elimination. And I decided I'd be a secretary. I was the first one in my family who went to university. But I went to a university where I could get a BA secretarial. So I could be an executive secretary, although I had no idea what that was or what you do. And in fact, when I tried it a few times, I, it was, I hated it. And I was bad at it. 
It's the only job I ever got fired from. <laughs> Very kindly, I was fired. And um, so I just tried a bunch of things, but I was completely in that sort of the girl mode. So what were my choices? I did teach a bit um, special ed, English as a second language in the elementary schools, but nothing everything irked me. I mean, I realized I was moving, I was in the hippie mode. That's what had brought me from Quebec to um, BC. And, but I wasn't happy, no matter what. I did some secretarial, I was a receptionist, I did childcare, but, and I could do them all. But, um, Anyway, to make a long story short, I went back to university. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Go back to school. Yeah. So I went back for my MA, and um, even that wasn't... I realized I don't want to be an academic either, although I could do this. I was good at this. Uh, so in the middle of my MA, I had a nervous breakdown, which turned out to be the gift, because I realized I had to get out of the city. I had to be alone. and. So I was asking all my friends, do you know of any place I could rent? Just for a term, I need to take a break in the Kootenays. Because that was in, you know, this was in the 70s um, when the Kootenays was the big place to go and all the co-ops, communes were there. No, nobody knew, but one person knew of a place on Pender Island. They had just given up their cabin. So I didn't want to go to Pender Island, <laughs> but... Um, it was a day out of the city, so I said, okay, I'll go look at it, and the real estate agent was going to pick me up and drive me around, and I've never been there, so I thought, oh, well, it'll be a day. And I, um, she showed me, so we drove um, through this very rural area, and we tromped through the woods, and then up, you know, wooden steps past the outhouse, and up to this A-frame, very small A-frame, onto a deck that overlooked the um, Swanson Channel toward looking southwest toward Victoria over the water. And I just said to her, I'll take it. It just, and Pender has always been like that for me. It's like, mm. it feels to me like a healing place and beautiful. And she said, you can't take it. You haven't looked at it yet. So, <laughs> so I looked. And then I said, I'll take it. And she said, okay, it'll be $400 for the year. I said, I don't want it for a year. I only want it for three months. She said, take it or leave it. So I took it. Now, it had no running water, no heat, but um, didn't matter. I was desperate. Desperation has been my other great motivation. <laughs> Desperation and nervous breakdowns. So yes. I've got a good theme going here. <laughs> and the next place I was desperate was a year later, I love Pender, I love living there, but I had very little money, even after I'd paid the $400 for my rent for the year. And um, so I needed a job. And um, I had met some people there who I really liked, still friends. And uh, I was at a party one night and standing around with some of the guys. And I was telling them, I'm going to have to leave the island. I've looked, you know, there's no waitress, there's no childcare, there's, I couldn't find a job. Because in all my brain was still on girl jobs. And one of the guys said, uh, well, I just quit my job today as a carpenter building the new school. Why don't you apply for that? And this was 1977. It was unconceivable. I have a good imagination. 
but it was unconceivable. So I was wordless, so I just said to him, well, um, well, for one thing, I've never built anything. <laughs> and, and he said, lie. And all the guys standing around are just nodding. Like, this is such a non-girl thing to do. A, think of construction, but B, to lie to get a job. As women, we're trained to be just wickedly, self-destructively honest and self-demeaning. So, uh, but I was desperate. So one of the guys lent me um, his tool belt, someone lent me a hammer, and I had steel toes because the summer before I had gone up uh, north and worked in a sawmill, a planer mill, um, because I needed money to go back to school, which had worked. So next morning I, I was terrified. I wore as many layers of clothes as I could so I could disguise the fact that I had breasts. <laughs> And then I um, went into the job site and lied and told them. I thought, okay, I'll tell him. I have. He said, what's your experience? So I told him I'd built houses, which the guys had coached me. Tell him you've built houses up north where you can't check. Well, turned out this guy was from the north. Ten years later, I actually built him a house in the north, Indies Lake. But anyway, at the time, he just he was very straight-faced. Uh, took my application and said, uh, come by tomorrow. I had no phone, so I had to go by. And the next day, it turned out, later I found out, the next day he hired me, thank God, not as a carpenter, but as a laborer, which is perfect. That's how you learn construction. And both of us thought I'd be lucky to, to last a week. <laughs> but I thought, well, I'll make a few dollars, you know, whatever. Um... But within a week, I loved it. He told me later, I became friends. Ray was the general foreman, Ray Hill. And um, he told me later, he went home that night, and he said to his wife, you'll never guess what happened today. No one had ever heard of a woman doing this work. Women cannot do construction. Everyone knew that. So the biggest block was originally the brain block. And his wife, thank goodness, was a feminist and a writer who said, well, hire her. And he did hire me, but he said the reason was because the guys had been slowing down and he thought with a woman around, they'd want to show off. <clears throat> and I said to him, did it work? He said, yep. And I said, but that's why you hired the other woman, because two months later, he hired another woman. Yeah, he said, yeah, then they were used to you. They were slowing down again. I said, did it work the second time? He said, nah. By the second time they figured it out, she's just, you know, she's just someone else on the job. So that's how, that's the long story of how I got into construction and loved it. Um, I had never, no one ever said to girls, they still rarely do, do you want to use your body? Do you like being outdoors? Do you want to make a lot of money? Um, and all of those things. But mostly I think I loved having a finished product. Mm. At the end of the day, you could see what you did for better or for worse. You knew what you'd done. No one's going to, like, I still drive by that school all the time, and it gives me that little flutter, like, I built that. You so know. the school that you built, well, obviously, it's, it's still there. It's, it's still the there. school on Pender Island. That yeah. must be fun, and you, and you have a place there now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've been going there ever since. 
so um, yeah, that's the. So you made it in in the um, in the carpentry business. So what what was that like though? I mean, you said that that after a couple of months that he hired this Ray had hired another woman, but really, you know, you're on a smaller site, but you're the only woman on this construction site. You have no experience. Like what what was that like? Well, luckily, I was so stupid about construction that I didn't know how stupid I was. <laughs> and the guys were so patient. There was one man who later hired me as his helper when that job was over. His name was Ted Bowerman, lovely man. Um, and I remember one day Ted was working on the roof and he asked me to go get his uh, crescent wrench out of his toolbox. And I said, what's a crescent wrench? Like, I didn't even know I should know that. I wasn't even embarrassed. So Ted doesn't blink. He draws a picture of a crescent wrench and throws it down on a little piece of two by four. He goes, it's silver. Looks like a lollipop with a mouth. And I found it. You know, that's how I learned was those guys were so patient. Another day, I, um, someone sent me for shiplap. By the time I got to where the lumber was stored, I'd forgotten what they sent me for. And Ray happened to be standing there. I said, Ray, so-and-so wants some wood, and I forget what it's called. Something, something, I said, something just water, surfboard? <laughs> and Ray goes, shiplap? And he says to me, Kate, it doesn't matter what you do, but just get the words right. <laughs> Maybe that was the beginning of me being a writer. Because the other part of that was, I was fascinated by the culture of the men. It was like going into a foreign country. They talked funny, they reacted funny. I loved what they did. And I loved being a part of the team to the extent I could be. Although they teased me <laughs> kindly, but unmercifully. But um, I was trying to figure this out. So every night I'd go home and I'd write pages, single space, keep journals of, and then he said this, and why did they do that? And why, uh, why did no one ever tell me that I was doing a good job? I was working so hard. So that was where I began uh, watching this culture as well as being a part of it. What, what did, were you seeing that was so different? Because I would imagine if I were looking at men's culture, I would go, everything looks normal. But from mm -hmm. your perspective, mm -hmm. like what were the kinds of things you were writing down and noting? Well, now a lot of this is going to be, it was in my memoir, um, uh, Journey Woman. But for example, the very first day, I made it to lunchtime and I was feeling very proud of myself. Like I made it a whole half day in construction. We all sit down. Now I knew these guys um, because it, this was a small island. Um, they were all about my age. We hung out together and, you know, did the things you do in your off time together in those days. And um, so we all sit down on a pile of plywood and one of the guys says, um, last night, eh? And all the guys laugh. And, I'm, and I don't know what they're talking about. And, and someone else said, yeah, 12, eh? And they all laugh again. And it was like these very abbreviated conversations now, partly, what I figured out later was, it was last night, they'd all been drinking and someone had 12 beer. 
but I didn't know that at the time. And that style of conversation now, later I realized in construction, it sort of makes sense because you're moving around all the time. You're dealing with noisy equipment. So short sentences are appropriate. But the other thing is the content of the sentences, <laughs> which is minimal. So the t I remember there was one job. I was working uh, downtown Vancouver. It was uh, my first union job, <clears throat> which was good because there was a job steward sort of keeping an eye out for me. Even if he didn't want to, he had to. That was his job. <laughs> <laughs> so the crew was pretty good on that job. And one guy in particular, <clears throat> He and I started having real conversations, like in the shack with the other guys around. We weren't, usually the guys would talk cars and sports. And that was okay with me because I always felt very vulnerable with them. Everything I did was, you know, that's what women do. I was sort of symptomatic of all women. Any mistake I made, they were all, like they watch you like a hawk. They've never seen a woman. They've never worked with a woman. They accept that women can't do this. So who are you and how come you and, but it, but in this, even though they're, even though they were decent guys, like this wasn't, um, there were always, there was always at least one asshole, but I would avoid him. I'd figure that out pretty quick. Um, so this one guy, we started, he gave his, giving me rides back and forth. We would talk about food, which is pretty, pretty radical. This would have been in the 80s. I was still an apprentice, but I was getting more confident. By then I knew, I knew I knew a few things. Um, also on that job, another guy who nobody else liked um, took me under his wing. He everyone knew he was the best framer, but nobody liked him. And the foreman, the first time the foreman said to me, go work with, his name was Cal, um, go work with Cal. I said, no. I mean, I'd never said no to a foreman. You never do that. But, but I didn't like this guy. But the foreman said, just please do it today. Foreman never say please either. You could tell how unusual it was. He said, please just do it for today. We have to get that, those roofing things on. So I went up to work with Cal. And one of the first things he said to me was, um, something about sleeping with his, uh, he slept with his um, saw, with his uh, chainsaw, but he had to wrap her, he said, but it's like a woman, I have to wrap her in plastic bags to keep the smell down. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> that's awful. So yeah, pretty bad. So I made sure he worked at one side of the building. I worked at the other side on this, this roof. But then he says to me out of the blue, once when we were sort of close to each other, he said, you know why women can't do this work? And I thought, okay, here we go. I said, no, why? He said, because they have no confidence in themselves. And I went, what? Like, how did he know that? And he didn't call me girl. He called me woman. So that got me curious. And in the end, Cal, he was a bitter, cynical guy, but oh my God, he was a great carpenter. And he said to me one day, he was sort of standing over watching me and I thought, okay, here we go. And he said, I'm going to make a framer out of you. And he did. I, I became a very good framer working with Cal. And of course, all the guys at that point were impressed because I was the only one who could work with Cal. And we were doing really, everyone could, see, I mean, the great thing in construction, everyone can see how you work, 
how well, how fast, how competent, how safe. So, yeah, I forget your question now, but it was complicated. The culture, yeah, the culture of the guys. There were so many things. One, another thing was, guys will never tell you you're doing a good job in construction. They'll tell you, they'll scream at you, tell you you're doing a bad job. They'll blame you for their bad instructions to you. Um, because for a long time, I waited for them to tell me, like, good, keep it up, which is what women would do. Um, so it took me about five years to, I, I tell women now, I say, I learned to talk construction work. I learned to talk guy. Um, <laughs> and I had to be careful because I, sh I had to be careful that I only talked it on the construction site. Um, guys always do one-liners, funny, one-up, like just to, and better if you can one-up somebody in front of other people, you mm -hmm. know, a little minor humiliation's good. It's all competitive. There's a wonderful book called Men and Women, uh, no, that's another one, Men and Women of the Corporation's a great book, but um, it's by a woman, Deborah Tannen, who's a linguist. And she talked about how, and I'll think of the title in a minute, she talks about how men are socialized in this, I mean, it's very biological, in this sort of vertical, competitive style, and women are socialized in this round, communal style. So women will be going, how are you doing? Oh, you're having trouble with that. Try a little harder. Try this. Oh, you're getting better. Men will be going, is that, is that the best you can do? <laughs> Which is, and everyone knows that's the way it goes. But when you're a woman walking into that, you're going, what the? Like, what a cruel, harsh environment. Now, I learned to talk it. I learned to walk the walk, and I came to really enjoy it. I got good at it. Um, I was working on a high rise. So this is, at this point, I'd been in the trade about 12 years. I was a journeywoman. I'd run my own company for a while, but there was no work. So I'd gone back to the union and I was building this high rise downtown. And there was a guy there, an apprentice, who was a terrible apprentice. I'm sure he never became a carpenter because he wouldn't do what he was told. Like when you're an apprentice, you just shut up and obey. That's what you're doing there. You're getting the trade into your body. You're watching, you're learning how people who know how to do it, do it. You, this is not theory. I mean, it's also theory. You go to school for theory, but the real job is doing it. It's a funny thing, this body, physical learning, which is what I loved. So anyway, this apprentice wouldn't do anything he was told. So I remember one day, so, so they gave him to me. <laughs> I mean, partly I was more patient than a lot of the guys. I, I like imagine, to think. Yeah. I like to think that was the reason. It wasn't just because I was a wusser. But anyway, um, so I had this guy and... One day, so he was doing this thing, you know, you'd say, pick up, can you pick up the other end? We were carrying some form plywood, which is really heavy, and the laborer wasn't around. So I said to him, grab the other end, let's just get this over there. Well, no, he wanted to change the saw blade first. Like, uh, stuff like that, which is gobsmacking when you're on a construction job where speed is of the essence mm -hmm. and you do what you're told because that's how it goes faster. So one day I had enough of this, and I... Uh, I should backtrack a bit. 
the guys would get mad, sometimes really mad, at each other, like the foreman would get mad at someone. And then he'd come round a few hours later and put his arm around the guy he'd got mad at and say, let's go for a beer, and off they'd go, and I would be amazed. Like, he said horrible things to him. <laughs> Women's culture, we would take it personally. But I would go home, and my husband, who was in, uh, also in blue-collar work, would say to me, you're taking it personally, don't take it personally. And I'd go, well, how can you not take it personally? He said it to me personally. Anyway, I finally figured that out, not to take it personally, mm. and it was a great gift. Men taught me, construction workers taught me, just to get on with the damn job. Just do it. Don't take it personally. Let it slide off your back. You can think whatever you want to think, but do the, do the job. So this day with this apprentice, I'd had it. So I got angry at him, really angry. But I wasn't really angry. I was, I, was, I was acting angry. I wasn't taking it personally. It was nothing personal. And I must say, it was a pretty good job. And a lot of older guys who had come to accept I was completely equal to them, doing the same work. There were a couple of older guys working nearby, and they, their mouths fell open like they'd never heard me talk like that. But my little apprentice just bucked right up and got right to work and was a great apprentice for about another two weeks. And then when he started doing his, no, no, I'm busy kind of thing, I did the anger thing again. It became an act. And it was very useful to know how to do that. But it was totally unfemale. Well, I, I think that's that's the interesting part is, I mean, you I had to almost embody masculinity mm -hmm. and masculine culture to, mm -hmm. to fit in. Mm -hmm. But it's the, the, the last part where you actually get angry at this apprentice and everyone kind of looks at you from on the job site. This this goes on today in a lot of corporate culture. Oh, really? Well, it's I mean, I, I it, more in less and less, but where. When when you have a woman who's leading and she takes she you know shows a, you know any kind of anger, often it's uh. like oh well is that is that really allowed? So there's less in women, right? Whereas if if a man uh, does that, yeah. a male leader. Now I'm speaking in general terms. There's lots of yeah. other cases, but yeah. it's a yeah. it's interesting that you pick that up. I'm I'm really curious though because you 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 figured out the game as it were, mm -hmm. and you were able to. You know, to tap into these more masculine traits to really succeed, mm -hmm. but you did it without losing any of your femininity. I mean, you and I have shared a couple of stories even before this podcast started, where you've talked about, oh, I, you know, I cried about sentencing of someone, and you, so you've you've maintained really good heart connection and emotional range, despite the fact that you worked in this male-dominated culture for decades. How like <laughs> how do you how do you do that? Well, it wasn't conscious at all. Um, hmm. I don't ever thought about that. I guess one really good anchor was uh, we formed a group of women called Women in Trades. Mm. And I would not have survived without them. There were days I thought, I cannot do this. You know, I, I give up. Guys have won. They don't want me there. I'm, I'm out of it. And then I would go talk to some other, you know, a friend of mine was an electrician, another woman, a boilermaker. We'd talk and have a meet. We met once a month. That kept me going. And I think that grounded me 
as a woman. We were women in trades. We originally talked about calling ourselves something non-traditional. And someone said, well, the guys don't call themselves traditional. So, so we were women in <laughs> trades. And I think that was important. I had a solid home base for most of that time. Uh, so I had sort of roots. Um, and I think also I'm sort of a pathologically nice person. Like I was raised to be a nice girl. And I, I do think every woman who does this work finds her own style. And a lot of my style in hindsight, I just, you know, I didn't, at the time there was no consciousness, was just to be a nice person with the guys. Um, I wanted to know what they knew. I wanted to work with them. We had, you cannot work alone on a construction site. You have to be in partners for many good reasons. So um, I think that was less intimidating to them. Uh, they sort of let me in because I wasn't, probably, you're right, because I wasn't an angry, tough broad. In fact, we used to joke about it, women in trades, that we'd meet on the weekends at the lingerie shops, like, I really am still a woman, aren't I? <laughs> I can wear lace, can't I? Um, but... And that was a question for me. In fact, when I first spent, I spent the first two years in construction as a laborer, and then I had to, I had to decide the issue wasn't, did I love the work? I did, undoubtedly, but did I want to continue feeling like a man at work? Because that's how, so I, I, I didn't know where my femininity was, and I went through this sort of mini, and the way I resolved that crisis was, um, went back to school and wrote my master's thesis on women in trades and traveled around BC finding, now this was in 1978, there were not many women, but I found them and the women passed me around like word of mouth, it was all word of mouth, there were no records, no, uh, you know, a woman in Kitimat, a woman logger, a woman fisherwoman, a, the odd one here and there, I had to talk to them. And I realized that we were all dealing with the same stuff. I think women today are dealing with it, which is one reason why we're still so few. Um, how do you be a woman doing what the men firmly believe is men's work? I mean, there are a few exceptions to that. Uh, there are some wonderful exceptions, actually, but most of the guys you work with think this is men's work, you're an exception, you'll be gone. Then we'll get back to normal. So um, what I realized was if being a woman or being feminine is being soft and mechanically incompetent and weak, uh, then I didn't want that definition. But uh, luckily my partner was, he had been... <laughs> He was raised by a single mom, and he knew how to do housework, and he knew how to, in fact, he's a better cook than me. He had a, he had a son when we got together. So he knew about, so we shared from the beginning, um, and he reinforced that for me, like, of course, of course you're a woman. But I had to rejiggle my definitions, um, and I think we all did in Women in Trades, and Different ones of us did it differently. I think the lesbians did it differently. Um, of course, all the guys assumed I was a lesbian when I, when I went on the job. Sometimes that was convenient. 
Um, I also used to wear a wedding ring sometimes, although it goes against WCB rules, but some jobs, that was my defense. Like, oh, I'm married to bed, even when I wasn't. Um, so, it, so that issue is a serious issue, femininity. And it, it seems like an odd one, but it was real. I think it's a huge one. I think it's huge today. Hmm. Still, really, you see, I still see cultures where, if a woman is to succeed in a leadership path, she has to adopt a, a dominant masculine essence oh, to, to succeed. It's not everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's not. I, I don't know if it's the norm. I don't. I certainly don't believe it is. But it, hmm. it's, it's still out there. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some great research out there around these workplaces as these masculinity contests, which you which, corporate? Yeah, corporate corporate. Yeah, where it's winner take all competition in a in a, in that kind of hierarchical way. And it shows up in different ways. So it would show up like today, stay the longest at work, stay the longest at the office. And, uh, and that's how you I'm get tougher. ahead. I'm tougher, I can handle more work. I'm, you know, non-emotional, emotionally unattached, mm -hmm. all of that stuff. And, and it turns out it's quite damaging, of course. not just for women, but actually for, uh, for, for men mm -hmm. um, as well, who don't want to be part of that culture. Mm -hmm. We talked a bit about the millennial generation and you know, mm -hmm. lots of men taking on mm -hmm. a significant share of housework and mm -hmm. wanting to be, actually wanting to be raising their children. Yes. Um, and, and they're their like, children yeah, wanting and their, their children dad. want them. So it's a, yeah. I, I find it interesting to hear your story hmm. and look at how this, this continues to to play out. Wow. Um, you know, the, in a way, though, I was, in a way, I'd say it was lucky. The good thing about being a woman in construction was I was, I, I, I didn't know this, but I must have been sort of a tomboy. Um, I didn't mind getting dirty. I loved the big, you know, I'm not a cabinet maker. I couldn't stand that little finicky stuff, although a lot of my bosses would assume that's what I'd want to do, the little finicky finish. No. I loved sledgehammers. I loved framing. I loved the big, I loved concrete. So I had permission to be big and dirty and tough because that's what they expected, sort of, sort of. <laughs> there was a lot of contradiction, which it sounds like is still going on. It it's absolutely still going on. What's interesting though is, I mean, you, these things like, oh, well, you know, a woman should be interested in the finer things. And I just, it's, to me, it's more about that's, there's that and there's that in everybody. You, there's a feminine essence and a masculine essence yeah. and which one, yeah. which one do you want to be yeah. working in? Yeah. So almost by accident without learning uh -huh. theory, you talk about embodying it. You've figured out how to live with this incredible range where you're very comfortable in a in a in a highly masculine state yeah. and yet also very comfortable in a in a very feminine state. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I would be called very feminine, <laughs> but but yeah, as a woman, I one of the reason why I stuck it for so long for 15 years um was because I said to someone, I have never felt so whole. My masculine side, my feminine side. I didn't even know I had a masculine side. I did. I found it. And I reveled in it. I became strong in both of those, in my masculine side, for sure, on the job. But even um, toward the end of my time, of course, I got a bit. Bra I got a lot braver on the job, got a lot cheekier. And um, 
So I would dare to introduce some of those feminine things. Generally, I was very careful to wall those off when I was at work. But um, <laughs> there was one job. I was working on SkyTrain um, crossheads in Vancouver. And it was a, it was a nice crew and um, with a terrible foreman. That always pulls a crew together nicely. You yeah, know? common enemy. He's the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. And um, so one day, I don't know how this came up. But there was one guy who was a motor, he loved motorcycles. And one day he said something about his daughter, which is very daring, but I'm sure he only did it because I was there, that he had taken his little daughter, he had a young daughter, he'd taken her out for her first ride on the motorcycle. And somehow that gave me permission. Something came up about food. One of the guys cooked something. And I said, oh, we should have a potluck. As soon as the words were in my mouth, I thought, are you insane? But anyway, they picked up on it. So I said, okay, let's tomorrow, everybody bring something. So the next day, so here we are, the SkyTrain, you know, crossheads are all above us. And we're in the shack, plywood table. And one guy brought a cooked salmon. One guy brought a pie that he, I said, did you make this or your wife? He said, I made it. And we brought salads and desserts or whatever. And um, as soon as the whistle rang, we only had a union job, only 30 minutes, like literally not 30 minutes and 30 seconds. I brought a tablecloth. I whip it out. We put it over a piece of plywood. All the guys bring their food out. We ate. And in 30 minutes, we whipped it all out again. We had a potluck lunch <laughs> on, on a construction site. So it was, it was quite lovely for me to have... Um, that it, it sort of reinforced that more communal, the feminine sense of community, like we're all in this together. Yeah. And in construction, you are, it's very collegial. Whether you like the guy you're working with or not, you need each other. Yeah. It's a safety thing. It's a production thing. But it's not spoken of in the same way that women are collegial. So that was a moment when those things came together really nicely for me. It was only one in 15 years, but, but it was a treasure. What a gift to have brought your colleagues to, those men on the job, to give them permission to exist in that communal state and to embrace a more feminine side of themselves as well, which is, I'm sure they, I'm sure they enjoyed it, although I don't know if they talked they about it much. They didn't say a word about they it. They probably no. didn't say much to you. Yeah, but, they, but the main thing was they did it. They wouldn't have done it if they thought it was too wusser, too femi, too. No, no, they were into it. That's, that's good. You gave them a safe, a safe place to do it. Yeah. That was fun. So I'm really curious about your, the research you did for your master's thesis. Like you, you went around the pr province and interviewed women that were working in trades. And obviously you said it was almost impossible to find them. Were, what were some of the stories you were hearing and the themes? Like anything stick out for you? Well, this was 1970 seven it was a long time ago 78 <clears throat> the main th now i can't remember specific stories the main thing i do remember though was how isolated all those women were um one was a, a fisherwoman out of prince rupert who had her own boat and that was a long story how that happened but you know with her dad she'd started and blah blah she worked alone one was a logger um she was a sawyer like most of them had connections with a boyfriend or a dad 
who had brought them in um, to this kind of work. One woman was a blaster in Prince Rupert. Um, but sort of odd, quirky ways that they had gotten in, and they were always the only woman. And none of them... See, this was... It was illegal... No, I shouldn't say that. In 19... Up until 1975, employers could legally not hire you because you were too short, too... I mean, basically, too indigenous, too female, too... They had all kinds of excuses for not hiring, and so they didn't. So wow. the workforces were white male. But in 75, when the NDP government was in, they set up a human rights branch that said, no, you can't do that. So the trick then was to say, we don't have washrooms. That, that was one of the tricks. Uh. We have no, oh, too bad we can't hire you. We'd love to, but. So the human rights branch actually bought Johnny on the spots and would send them up north with women working, that's how we first got women into the um, into Kitimat, into the um, mill up there. Was she came with her own Johnny on the spot, and after a while, then human rights laws have continued. So now you cannot refuse to hire someone because of their height or their weight or their you know gender or color or any of those yeah. you know sexual preference all that. But at the time, there was none of that. So. Um, so it was actually miraculous there were any women anywhere, but it was very slow. When I did that research for my thesis, um, I wanted to know how many women were there in blue-collar work in British Columbia in 1978. And uh, there were the, the feds didn't keep those statistics. There were no statistics on women in trades. So I literally phoned all the big employers and they'd say, oh, we got lots of women. And I'd say, no, no, not in the office. <sighs> How many women do you have in hard hats? <laughs> and the numbers would plummet. <laughs> but so by that very rough calculation, and I'd phone the unions and basically no one had, we had one, they'd have, you know. Basically the numbers were roughly 3% in the blue collar trades, which actually I thought was higher than I'd expected. And then in um, 2007, uh, which is now way back again, I was um, in, uh, in the chair at SFU Women's Studies, and I did that research again, or at least I had a graduate student do it. Um, for a year I taught there and, and um, issues around trades and stuff. And this graduate student did the research again, and now it was much easier because the feds keep those stats. And the number of women in blue-collar work, excluding chefs and hairdressers, because those are apprenticeships, uh, the number of women in hard hats was 3%. So that's, what, 50 years later. And we've had uh, courses, we've had role models, we've had law changes, we've had... Uh, some employers who have worked very hard for diversity, um, and and it hasn't changed. So, so I have a theory. I want to hear it because I my my next question was going to be why, but it why? seems like it was begging to come out of you already. <laughs> yes, well, because I've been thinking about this. Why? And women can do this. I've traveled. I've done. I've traveled across the country twice, interviewing women, tradeswomen. I did a radio program for CBC Ideas. I did a, a booklet for what was then the Women's Bureau federally, 
um, at talking to these women. And they're doing everything, every kind of job. And I'd say, is there a strength problem? Not a single woman had a strength problem, even the little tiny women. They all go, no, it's not about the tools. It's not about the strength. You know, one woman who is a mechanic on the SkyTrain here in Vancouver told me, um, no, if I can't budge something, I just get a wrench and extend, I get more leverage. So you learn, I learned that with construction, how to carry sheets of plywood, you balance. It's all about balance. And at the end, if it's too heavy, you shouldn't be carrying it alone. You get someone to help you. And in fact, what I've heard from guys is when a woman occasionally asks for help, it somehow gives them permission to ask for help. So it's safer. Guys start using their safety equipment, earmuffs, because the woman's using hers, so it's sort of okay. So the question was why? And what I think the issue is, um, I was doing a research project on women on the island highway. Because when the island highway was built on Vancouver Island, um, it was another NDP government who, who said, uh, we will build this using only local labor, which is what people wanted, but um, you have to hire women and First Nations. Because it went through about 26 um, different, um, you know, First Nations. Oh, yeah areas and um, well the employers were not happy but they wanted local hire so they went along with it so yes women and First Nations were hired but they ended up putting all of them in one on one crew and working together so I was off in the bush somewhere interviewing an, a, a foreman nice guy I would have liked working for this guy we were off in the bush together just the two of us he would not let me record the interview and I said to him, so why aren't you hiring women? Uh, or why is it only they all go up to that job, the women and the First Nations? In fact, it was only First Nations men who ended up working on it because the women had an even harder time. I realized what the hierarchy is on the jobs is starts with white men, then men of color, then white women, then women of color and and. That's my theory, because there were no, by the end of that, there were no women, First Nations women left, some First Nations men and a few women. I, so I said, why? Um, and he said, do you know what it's like when I have a bunch of rangy guys and a woman comes on the job? He said, um, they just try to get rid of her. They'll back up too fast. And she's happened to be like, like really dangerous, violent stuff he was talking about. They were trying to get rid of the woman no matter. So, uh, what, so it was easier for him to get rid of the woman. I said, why don't you fire the guy who did that? He tried to kill her. Well, no, that wasn't an option. And I thought, this is a management problem. Mm -hmm. I know that if a foreman had laid off the guy who tried to kill me once on a job, that would have been the end of any trouble I ever had on that job. Like I never said to guys, you, you have to love me being here. All I want is to work with you. Just put up with me and you can go home and say whatever you like, but I want to work here too. And um, if that 
if the, if the management people would just take that action. Someone just told me this the other day. Um, there is a restaurant um, in, I think it's in Victoria, that has been there forever. And there's a waitress who's been there forever along with it. And um, we were talking about her. And my friend said, oh, no, not Victoria in Surrey. And uh, my friend said, at one point, when she was quite new there, um, she'd been working and a, one of the clients leaned over and pinched her behind. And the boss happened to notice. Just right away, he was on to that guy. He said, you're, you're out of here. And the guy said, oh, I haven't finished my food. He says, you're out of here. Kicked him out and he said, we will not have that in this restaurant. Well, um, they never had that again in that restaurant. The woman was so grateful. She's, she worked there for the next 40 years because mm. she felt safe. It was, it was just fair workplace. And that was one gesture by, you know, one moment changed the whole thing. And I thought on a construction site, I tell you, guys talk. Everyone knows. If one guy was harassing me, it took me a few years to figure this out. They all knew, but no one said anything. If the foreman had fired that guy, um, that would have been it. That workplace would have been fine. And I'll just tell you a follow-up story to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, please do. I was um, asked to uh, speak. I was still on the tools at the time. And there was a high school teacher who asked me to speak to his class. And I was very touched by that. He said, I've got girls in the class, but they want to drop out because they don't like doing it with boys. And in fact... Um, this, is a, it, this is a carpentry class or a construction It was class? a shop class. Oh, shop class. A shop okay. class in a high school. And in fact, since then, what they've discovered is if you set up a shop class just for girls, it'll be wildly over-enrolled. Girls in high school, well, you know, you're going through all that weird puberty stuff. They don't want to do shop with boys. But they do want to do they shop. They want to do shop, yeah. Well, I never experienced being a girl in high school, but um, I experienced being a boy in shop class, and there were no, there no, were girls. no girls. No, no. That's still 3%, right? Yeah. The odd girl. And this guy cared that he actually had one, I think he had one girl, and she wanted to drop out. So he brought me in. He said, could you just tell, you know, read some of your poetry, talk about being a carpenter to the boys and the girls. And... Um, I, I like this guy, and, af and he had been a tradesperson. So afterward, I said to him, I have a question for you. Um, why is it on a job that when one person is being harassed, it might be the woman, it might be the native guy, it might be the man of color, of which there are very few, but when one person is being harassed, everyone knows, why don't any of the guys speak up? Because in a woman's culture, that sense of, you know, like, are you okay? You know, do you need any, you know, don't talk to her. Like, like in that sort of circular culture where, I mean, I'm, I'm sure women don't always do it either, but there's a tendency to look out for each other. But the guys in that competitive thing. So I said, why don't the guys say anything? He's, and he was shocked. He said, well, that would be implying you couldn't look after yourself. And I thought, oh my God, that is so unfemale. That like it blew my mind. Never, I'd been 15 years in the trade. That would still never have crossed my mind. And of course, it's the competition. They don't want to belittle you by offering to help you or speak up for you. What's interesting though, I told that to a trades guy. Um, 
guy in my union, and he said, we were at that point I was teaching at BCIT, he was another teacher and a different trade. He said, you know, if you ever have trouble on a job next time, tell the iron workers. I said, tell the iron workers, like why? And he said, the iron workers will look after it. <laughs> <laughs> like the mafia of yeah, the construction like that. industry. Well, the iron workers are one of the only trades at, this is in my day, so this was in the 80s at that point, early 90s. The iron workers were the trade that had the most men of color and the most, uh, very still very few indigenous men. Uh, so they knew and they would look out for each other. And always between us, the odd time there was a guy on the job, there was an Indo-Canadian guy on one job, he was the crane operator. And I saw him one day and we both like did the wink. Like, we know, I know what you're going through. You know what I go So there is a sort of a fellowship um, between us oppressed or whatever we are. Fellowship minorities. of the oppressed. Yeah. <laughs> Who wrote a book about that? Um, so that was a revelation that the men were thought they were being respectful by not speaking up. When in fact... It, 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 it left, as women, you're already isolated, but it just left you even more isolated. And I'm sure, my theory is that's why women are dropping out. Women want the trade, they take the courses, they apply for the jobs, and after a year or two, and this is what women told me right across the country, it's not the weight, it's not the physical stuff, it's the guys. So, and and that that carries on today even still. I, I like I like the theory, um, and maybe it's a it's a generous theory. It's generous in the sense that we're, you know, allow allowing people, in essence, to say, "Well, I'm not speaking up because I thought you wouldn't want that." Um, my I, I feel like I've got a more my a more cynical viewpoint, which is that um, speaking up means that you then have to out yourself. That's right, and I I realized that later. Because the other thing is, it is a tight club. There is a gang mentality in men that that I'd never have seen. I mean, I'm sure it is in some women, but I've never seen it. So there's that thing about you isolate yourself if you speak up. I I, I get it. Well, the 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 part of that, I mean, the psychological part of that lives in all in all of us, you know, men and women and whoever. It's this inherent bias we carry, and it happens especially in in a in a workplace setting, where we see there, we see this we observe this cultural phenomenon. Let's say we observe um, that you know women are being you know pushed off the job site, for instance. And if you're in the you know if, if you're a man and it's a male dominated site, your inherent bias is well. I have to assume all of us want this to happen. Want what? We want, we want, all of us want women to be pushed off the job site. Uh. So they, they say, I don't want this to happen, but I'm the only one. So when we have, uh. often when we feel, huh. it's a bias we all carry around and it happens a lot in group settings and happens a lot in corporate settings. A woman huh. named Jennifer Berdahl has done the research on this at UBC. Huh. And it's fascinating when you think about it because that. You know, I think it applies to other situations as well. But we, hmm. we look at a situation and we go, well, 
not so much that I'm worried about outing myself, but I just assume this is what we all want. Like, so in a corporate setting, we all, we must. So I'm an exception. I'm the exception. Uh, I'm the only one that doesn't want to, you know, feel like I have to stay here until 10 o'clock at night to prove myself. I'm the only one who, uh, you know, doesn't like it when, you know, the boss berates me in front of all the people. Um, And so we don't speak up because we assume that everyone else wants this thing. So people need more courage. Uh, Yeah, and courage is, is a good one because I think if to get beyond that 3%, in trades um, and to help to help you know just really in, in improve the gender situation that we're in in you know, 2019 mm. it's courage and it's the thing you talked about earlier which is embodiment because courage is theoretical <laughs> and you can you can easily you can in theory you can have courage but yeah. courage is courage yeah. if it's not act. embodied that's or right. practiced that's then right. it doesn't go anywhere that's right yeah Huh. Yeah, yeah. It's like that just got out. I just thought of something. Um, It'll come to you. Yeah, it will. As soon as I go on to another thing. We can come back to it. But I mean, if you look at where we're at today, we talked before the interview started a little bit about the, the Me Too movement and just what's been going on recently. You've been in this, you've been in this game and um, fighting for change for so long. Like, are you frustrated? Are you optimistic? Like, where are you at with this? Because my goodness, like, it's been a long journey. It's and, been a while. And we're and you and you said we're still at three percent. Yeah. Uh, well, I must say, I feel like an old lady. I look at these young women, the Me Too. Part of me is thrilled. Like, finally. Women are speaking up. Like women, the women's side of that male thing of not speaking up is women haven't spoken up Mm. either. Um, And they are speaking up. Um, They're getting really um, beat up about it, which you do when you speak up sometimes, especially when you're alone speaking up. But that it's it's a question of numbers. So they're starting to do that. I I think... um, Part of me th- thinks back when, and, and I do think it's a little over the top, like if I was a guy right now, I'd be really careful about my P's and Q's, but we were like that too in the 70s, like we were outrageous, but I think when you first realize the injustice, that it wasn't right that you could only be a nurse, a secretary, or teacher, that you had to be good looking to be a stewardess. Um, when you realize you're, it's okay to get angry about this injustice, you get really angry. And you're together being angry, which feeds it. Um, and we were to, like, God help any guy who opened the door for you or <laughs> any of those sort of, didn't matter that your arms are full of groceries. Um, so I can allow some of that overreaction. I think that's a natural thing. I did it too. In terms of changing this, I have also come to see how huge this issue is. Um, I was in the library once and I picked up this book and browsed through it and put it down and I really wish I'd kept it. It was some guy who did the research around the world. Every culture has this diminishment of women, keeping women in their place. Um, So it's a huge thing that women, particularly in North America, I do think we're sort of leading in Europe, um, 
I think even more in North America, um, that we're leading this questioning of this um, dominance hierarchy. And the trick is that women do, we do have a different culture. We do have some different priorities and so do men. And these could fit together and supplement each other in a wonderful way. I mean, me feeling whole as a human being in construction. But we're afraid of that huge change because, um, you know, we look at how women, when I first went into the union movement, I was horrified by how harsh it was. And, you know, like you say, maybe the men didn't like it that harsh either, but no one spoke up and I adjusted. I thought, okay, I don't have to be that harsh myself, but that's the way it is. And maybe it doesn't have to be that way. So what it is, is it's almost like this, talk about optimistic, but we're trying to blend two different um, cultures, male and female cultures that in fact, could create together. I mean, it's uh, brings tears to my eyes to think of what it could be. Mm-hmm. You know, when I see on the street something that wasn't in my day, which was young men with their kids looking after babies and stuff, it's really heartwarming. Like, yes, that's a part of where we're going. It's okay. You're still a man. You're still manly. You're still masculine. And you love your baby. Um, that's very important. I think that's a really huge step forward. In my day, my dad had six kids and God knows he loved us all madly, but he wouldn't be caught dead doing that because it was so unmasculine. His job was to earn money, period. Well, it's the same, it's, it's, it's the same thing as your example of, of you, of your own life where you just, you just decided to not be afraid of stepping into a huge masculine part of your reality. Well, I was afraid, but I did it anyway. Well, you anyway. did anyway. You had the courage. But that's, like, this This to me is the interesting part where we talk about blending. But blending doesn't mean that everything is gray or that we end up in this no, thing no. where, you know, women and men just become the same. Where we can, no, a man can, no. be, can be masculine in his core yeah. and yeah. also embrace the fact that he has a feminine part of him. Yeah that might express a lot of emotion, yeah. that might be excellent with children and love children. And I think yeah. that's the, the work of men is to embrace that side. Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. certainly in, in my work, I see that. Huh. It's hard, yeah. just as hard as it yep. was for you to go into a construction site and go, wow, this is going to suck, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, I didn't know it was going to suck <laughs> I guess until that's I hit in the face. The ignorance. <laughs> but you know what? I actually think it's harder for men. Because men have been dominant, men have had all the uh, power, all the status. I can, I get it. That's hard to give that up. Um, I mean, in a way, it's easier for us women, and not easy, but there's an aspect of it that's easier because we also would like to share. I wanted to learn my trade. I wanted to be a better carpenter. Um, women want to head corporations and be doctors and. Um, all the, and it, so it's it's easier in that sense to rise rather than to be humble and say, you know what, I have things to learn. I don't think it becomes gray at all. I think it's actually more gray now with the extremes, like men are only this and women are only that. Mm-hmm. 
that when we, if we can take on those parts of ourselves that are reflected in the other, it actually, the country, the world becomes much more multicolored and uh, unique and um, interesting. Interesting is, is a good one. I mean, with, in, in the corporate side, you know, their corporations are largely, it's a masculine structure that you operate in. Yes. So it's a can, way of operating. Right. Can a you masculine bring, way of operating. And if you bring femininity into that, mm-hmm. it, it does get more interesting. Mm-hmm. But the men will say, no, no, that's too soft. Right. But that's the point. This is the, yeah. The point <laughs> is you're too harsh. Soften up. Yeah. And then I get it. Then you're emotionally vulnerable. And that's hard because you don't know how to deal with it. So learn to deal with it. You know, you can go away, you can do it just with other men, whatever makes you feel safer doing it, but um, you might feel better. Just like you did with the women in trades. Yeah. You create a safe, create a space for women yeah. to explore this, hey, there's this thing going on and are we all, all right, okay, we're all, we're all experiencing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is, there are a lot of, a lot of men's groups out there and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of one of them and it's, it is, it's a safer space to go. Mm-hmm. We can we can be better, right? We can we can do better than this model we've been handed. Mm-hmm. And um, how do we do this? But how? Do, like, because I don't really know how to do it. So how do you do it? And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's interesting because I, I was listening when you're talking about women, women in trades. I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, there's lots of space for women to come together, and they should. And there's also lots of space for men to come together, and they mm-hmm. do it less. Well, you know what? Women now are doing it less too. Um, because I still do public speaking about this, and although less than I used to. And um, I was at the library the other day in Vancouver doing something, it was a few years ago, and several young tradeswomen had come, which was thrilling for me. Like, you know, these women are still, women are still doing this, here they are. And I said, do you guys get together? And they said, well, just on Facebook, just on, on their uh, devices. And... Um, it's not the same. Like all the research shows that the brain research, why are all these young people depressed and in anxiety? It's because apparently the brain doesn't register until it has body language. It's interesting. But having a click on a, on a device in front of you it makes no difference to your psychological well-being or not it has to be body language so you have to be and I said that to them you have to get together just trust me (laughs) you need to see this woman roll her eyes at exactly the right moment (laughs) and nothing more needs to be said so so I I grieve that they're only that they're thinking that the um, computers will do it for them they won't or they won't nearly do it as well as being able to talk to each other in person and get the body language. I think that's that's true. Even when I when I do my podcasts um, long distance, I use video. Ah. Because it's more challenging on the phone. I mean, you can do it on the phone, but it's more challenging. You're yes. relying on just vocal tonality. Yes. Whereas the internet, it's just text. I mean, sometimes. I and mean, there's lots of lots of video applications out there. Yes. But it's an interesting. Yes. Um, I use it all the time. I'm not saying never use it. Yeah. You're clearly not a Luddite. (laughs) I'm pretty close. Well, I'm not a great. Anyway, there, I think there's a place Mm -hmm. 
for all of these things. And that's interesting that you found that too. Yeah, I've, I found a lot of it. So um, we're on the eve as we record this of International Women's Day. And mm. I'm, I'm curious, you're reflecting on this as 2019. You, if we go back to 1977, um, what, what are, some, are some big notable pieces of progress that you've seen as far as on, on the gender side? Maybe not in trades, it seems like there maybe aren't a ton of examples, but at least in, in your work and your research and your poetry. Yeah. Well, there's the odd one in trades too. Like I know a woman who's a welder inspector senior so there are there's the odd woman who's in a senior position form foreman or whatever um but overall um there has been there has been change and given how difficult i think this is the most basic change uh this relationship feminine masculine balance i'm really cheered by the me too I'm really encouraged by, by seeing young men who have clearly made changes. Um, you know, there's always one step back. Uh, um, a woman whose son had gone into construction, something had happened. She told the story. Um, something happened. And she said to him, well, why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you say something? Because she knew he would. And he said, Mom, if I do that, I step right out of the group. I'm going to be excluded. So, yes, the older guys are still trying to teach the younger guys how to be macho and not care. That, you know, but inevitably. But I do feel like there is this, you know, for this huge movement, there is some motion. I, I try not to think of... A guy once said to me, he was a friend of mine, his wife worked in diversity, feminism... He had worked with me on jobs. He, he saw that I was as carpenter, as good as he was. And we were at a party one night and we, you know, had a few tokes and a drink. And I said to him, so why can the men not accept me? At this point, I was fully competent. Why? And he said, this, this feminist guy said, he said, well, when we go home, you women do the emotional work. And God knows we do. Um, so you do the caring and the uh, a lot of the housework. And, all. and he said, so if you can also do our work, in quotes, then why would you need us? I was stunned. Like, you know, I live with a man. I have a son. Of course, it's not one or the other. But that was his take on it. Even this... Um, sort of enlightened so-called man it's one or the other and I think that's the problem we can do both and that's a big change and not everyone's going to want to do both you know but for people who do want it we should be supporting each other that's a, such an interesting point because he's he's pointing out something to you, not that it's right for him to not accept or men to not accept you as a carpenter, but he's pointing out to a, a fundamental reality. And I think part of why we're at such an important time in history now um, is that since 1977, maybe there hasn't been a ton of progress or maybe, you know, there's Obvious. been some, but yeah. 
but there's been some significant change in that in a lot of places, especially in like a metropolitan kind of place like we're in Vancouver, women actually, from a safety and security and finance perspective, they don't need men. So for like my, for so financial support. Whereas, whereas right. when you were growing up and you were looking at, right. I only have three That's options. True. Now women look out and That's go, true. I can make money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can make my own babies if I decide yep. I want to do that. Yep. I can pay, you know, I can pay for anything I want to do. I can have yep. a job. I can keep my house clean. Yep. That's so true. why would you need a man? Or and, <laughs> because you love one. Well, and that's well, and that's the part of it. And it, it, when it, you know, taking this in from the from the workplace to relational is that, well, you might need a man, who to be able to take you somewhere that you couldn't take yourself emotionally. Ah. So men are being called now in relationship. It's it's not enough to just say, "Well, I'm I'm bringing home the bread," because they're going, no. "Yes, yeah, so am I," and mm -hmm. I actually bring it home more than you do. Mm -hmm. So I really don't see mm -hmm. like that doesn't allow doesn't allow for the behavior. It's not enough anymore. Not enough. And so I think a lot of men are encountering this. Uh -huh. And so what it what it calls for is you go, well, then why why would a woman need a man? Why would a man need a woman? Well, then you have to celebrate uh -huh. your 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 core, which yes. is your masculine core, your feminine, feminine core and go, yeah. Oh, your humanity. There's something, there's something here, you know, can, you know, can your, can your woman really nourish you with feminine energy? Of course mm -hmm. she can. And she mm -hmm. can do it way better than you can do that to yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, can a man provide structure for all of that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a, Mm -hmm. I think that's that's why when people mm, are like, well, what's unique? You know, people say we're at an important time, and mm -hmm. that's part of it. In a lot of places, especially in the Western world, mm -hmm. women just don't need men like they like mm -hmm. they thought they used to. Mm -hmm. Which is probably, I'm just thinking this now, why in other parts of the world the men are fighting it so hard? Like what? Women can't even drive? No, because that's you know slippery slope. And and in a way, they're right. They're right. Um, women, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's in a way terribly sad that um, we have been so separated from each other and from ourselves. Our own selves have been divided in half and we haven't been allowed. And what a richness if we can keep moving. But I do, I, I actually do now empathize far more with men than I used to. <laughs> Because I do see that they give up and they, in a way, it takes more courage to come. Um, I, you shouldn't, I shouldn't say come down in, but it is. It's coming down in power, coming down in status, perhaps, as you equalize. But there's so much to gain, which at this point, a lot of men don't see as a gain. Like what? Becoming more emotionally sensitive? Why would I want that? Yeah. And I can see them going, oh, no, it's... And I've had that experience in my life in construction. Being tougher was better. It would get me more, get me further, keep me on the job, wouldn't get laid off next. But you pay. You don't feel like a whole person, no. like you said. No, you pay a price. You don't feel so good. So I wonder if that's a good place for us to close, is to look to the future where women and men, whatever work they're doing, can actually feel whole. Um, so Kate, this has been such an amazing interview. Mm, it's thanks. so fun to interview someone who has known me since, um, since, no, since, you were four. since I was four years old, um, <laughs> building my basement. My, my, my model for carpentry was always, well, it's probably a woman if she's a carpenter. Cause I only know Kate. <laughs> <laughs>
So <laughs> you shifted my paradigm. This has been so insightful. And um, I'm curious, where, where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're not um, a huge user of social media, but where can people find out more about your work or your research? Well, I've written a lot of books, including one memoir about being a carpenter. It's called Journey Woman, uh, Swinging a Hammer in a Man's World, published by Caitlin. Um, and I've written three poetry books about construction, poems about construction. And I have a website. Um, I do readings, one tomorrow, Women's Day. Um, so my website is www.katebraid.com. All right. I will link up all that for all my listeners in the show oh, notes. They don't have to write that stuff down. Okay. Um, and so thank you, thank you, thank you. And good mm. luck tomorrow night at your reading at International Women's Day. Yeah. There you have it. That is a wrap on episode 15 of the Men at Work podcast with Kate Braid. What a wonderful woman to talk to. We could have gone on for hours and I'm going to likely have her back. Uh, Kate is really quiet on the social media front. In fact, non-existent. She's got a great website you can check out through the show notes, katebraid.com. She's won so many different awards. She was one of Vancouver's Remarkable Women of the Arts in 2012. She was awarded the Mayor of Vancouver's Award for Literary Arts for showing leadership and support for Vancouver's cultural community. And in 2016, she received the Pandora's Collective BC Writers Mentor Award. So if you want to check out more on Kate, please do so. If you enjoyed this conversation and you like it enough to leave a review, I'd be immensely grateful for that. Even just a like is good for me. All right, stay tuned. Episode 16 is coming at you next.